In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, the Lord Jesus, he said to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so what we need to keep in mind is that everything that we've been looking at in the book of Acts is really about that. It's about the Spirit of Christ empowering Jesus' disciples to obey His command to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we, uh, we see here in this passage, the gospel that radiated out of Jerusalem has come to Philippi in Greece. And so the gospel has come to Europe And as we consider the gospel expansion into Europe, we realize, of course, that Paul, Silas, and Timothy certainly play a very important role in that gospel expansion into Europe. However, this passage draws our attention to the fact that while it is true, absolutely true, that Paul, Silas, and Timothy played very important role Yet it is the Holy Spirit who is driving the gospel expansion. And so the first thing we focus on this morning is that the Spirit opens doors. The Spirit opens doors. Now, did you notice how in this passage, this passage begins with Paul, Silas, and Timothy unable to proclaim the gospel. But this time, it was not the persecution from the unbelievers that hindered or that interrupted their gospel ministry. And this time, it was not theological controversy that interrupted their ministry. In this passage, we find Paul, Silas, and Timothy unable to proclaim the gospel because the Holy Spirit himself stopped them. And so we read, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, uh, probably some of the younger people here uh, need a bit of an explanation. Uh, To us, Asia is part of the world where you might find places like, for example, China, Korea, or Japan. That's Asia to us. But to the first century Greco-Roman people, Asia uh, meant the lands bordering the eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea. And that's what was called Asia in those days. And the Holy Spirit did not want Paul, Silas, and Timothy to take the gospel into that region. And so Paul and company Uh, obeyed the Holy Spirit's leading, and they changed their course, and they went to Mysia. You know, this is one of those passages where you have these strange places uh, names that are thrown at you. So let me uh, make some running commentaries and explain to you where these places are. So when the Holy Spirit forbade them from going into Asia, or what we now call Asia Minor, or Turkey, the region surrounding Turkey, they changed their direction and went to Mysia, which is actually the northwestern uh, edge of Turkey. And from there, they attempted to go into Bithynia. That's past Istanbul, 
located on the Black Sea. So they wanted to travel north and to the east. But once again, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And so they changed a direction once again, and they went west to Troas, which is a seaport, a harbor on the Aegean Sea, located on the northwest of Asia Minor. And there, a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia. Macedonia is the region of Europe that, that is now in between what we now call Bulgaria and the Greek Peninsula. So a man from Macedonia was standing there in, in the vision, urging Paul, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And now something really interesting happens in this passage. I wonder if you noticed it. Did you notice the change of the voice? In verse 6, chapter 16, verse 6, this passage begins out by saying, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. But now verse 10, we read, and when Paul has seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So there's a change of the voice from the third person plural to first person plural. It goes from they to we. Now what's happening? Uh, this is the point at which the author of Acts, Luke, joins the party. This is where Luke has joined Paul, Silas, and Timothy and become their traveling partner and ministry partner. So if you think about it, Luke has learned everything that has happened up to this point by compiling carefully the various eyewitness accounts. And it is at this point that Luke himself becomes an eyewitness of what the Lord is doing. So that is why the voice changes from they to we. But here, an important question is raised. Why did the Spirit lead Paul and his company away from Asia and Bithynia? Obviously, there are people there, many people, who have never heard of Jesus Christ. And it was Paul's desire and his partner's desires to take the gospel into these places where the gospel had never been preached before. But the Holy Spirit said, no, don't go there. Why? Was it because the Holy Spirit knew that the people in Asia and Bithynia would respond poorly to the gospel? Did the Holy Spirit send Paul to Macedonia because the people of Macedonia were worthy of the gospel? Well, actually, that is not the case at all. Because if you remember from Isaiah chapter 65, this is what the Lord said about his heart. In Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1, the Lord said, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. And what that tells us is that the, the fact that people are going to well respond poorly to the gospel never bothers God because 
every single one of us, by nature, we are alienated from God, and by nature, we respond with unbelief to the gospel. So, the point here is not that people, certain people were not worthy of hearing the gospel and other people were more worthy of hearing the gospel. They were all unworthy, just as you and I, we were unworthy. That's not the point at all. Because you see, the gospel, the gospel is never a reward uh, to those who have proved themselves worthy. It's never the reward that God gives to the deserving people. The gospel, the good news, it is God's gift to the unworthy people because salvation is God's gift to give. And so you might remember from Exodus chapter 33 where the Lord says, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. You see, salvation is a gift. And because it is a gift, none of us are entitled to that gift as if we have somehow earned eternal life. Salvation is a gift, and God closes and opens doors according to His sovereign purpose. And that's what we are seeing here And we need a reminder, don't we? Salvation is the gift of our sovereign God. He gives to whom He will, and He shows grace and mercy to whom He will. The Spirit opens doors. Secondly, the Spirit opens hearts. The Spirit opens hearts. Another very important question that this passage raises is this. How do we discern God's will? How do we figure out what God wants from us? Do we wait to hear an audible voice from God? Or do we need to see a vision like Paul did? I think that's a very important question. How do we discern God's will? And I think it's worth remembering that in the book of Acts alone, we have seen people facing that question, and we have seen people fasting and praying in order to discern God's will. And we saw this when Paul and Barnabas were first set aside for the Lord's work in Antioch. So there, the whole church came together. They fasted, they prayed in order to discern God's will. And in in chapter 15, we saw how the Jerusalem council, the apostles and the elders met together. They deliberated. They had long, drawn-out discussions, and they studied the scriptures together in order to discern God's will. And here, in this passage, we read, we sought to go into Macedonia. And what that indicates is that Paul did not simply say to his partners and, and, and his co-workers, you know, I saw a vision from God, so this is what we need to do. <laughs> no, they deliberated it together. They discussed it together, and 
they discussed it within the framework of obedience to the Great Commission. So let me explain it to you this way. If you are ever wondering what God's will is between doing what the Lord commands and what the Lord forbids, there can be no discussion. You cannot wonder, is it God's will for me to rob a bank? No, that is so clearly outside of God's revealed will that you cannot even entertain the possibility. Is it God's will? God, please show me. What do you want me to do? Do you want me to love my neighbors or hate my neighbors? The really unknowing. What is your will? Again, there can be no discussion about it because it is the Lord's command to love our neighbors. So when we discuss discerning God's will, we need to understand that it is always within the framework of God's revealed will for us. It's always within the framework of God's commandments and His law. You do not have, I do not have, we do not have the freedom to wonder, is it God's will for me to do something that is against God's law? That is clearly not what is happening here. What they're discussing, remember, what they were attempting to do, knowing that Jesus had commanded them, go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, they are discussing how to obey the commandments and the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is within the framework of obedience to the Lord Paul sees this vision, and even then he does not insist that his follower, his partners follow him blindly. They discuss it together. And so in the book of Acts, following the Spirit's leading is never simply, this is what God told me. You know, I meet people like that often. Oh, the Spirit is impressing upon my heart to do this. And I ask them, if it's appropriate. Well, the Spirit hasn't told me. Are you sure about this? And sometimes I ask that, well, how does this measure up against God's Word? Because when we look at the New Testament, when we look at the book of Acts, discerning God's will and following the Spirit's leading is never simply God told me so I have to do it, but it is always something that involves prayer, something that involves the reflection of mature believers who have a firm grasp of God's Word. Because a spirit is never set against the Word. And we see the same in Philippi. Uh, Paul and the company, they eventually arrive in Philippi, which is a city uh, in Greece. And on the Sabbath day, Paul went outside the gate to the riverside And Luke tells us, we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Lydia was a worshiper of God, a Gentile who had adopted the faith of the Jewish people. And we read, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So understand what is happening. The Spirit led Paul away from Asia and Bithynia and and from other places. And the Spirit brought Paul to Philippi, to Lydia, so that Paul 
may preach the word of God to this woman. And then the Spirit opened Lydia's mind to understand the word that was preached to her, and the Spirit opened Lydia's heart to believe the message that was preached to her. The Holy Spirit works through the Holy Scriptures. The Spirit of Christ, and do you remember how Jesus was described to us in John chapter 1? The Word who was with God. So the Spirit of the Word who was with God works through the Word of Christ. The Spirit and the Word are never to be set in opposition. The Spirit works through the Word. That is to say, God uses the preached Word. And at the same time, the Word is ineffectual. It does not accomplish its goal and its design without the Spirit of God. So preaching alone has no power unless the Spirit causes the hearers to understand and to believe what they hear. Again, salvation is God's gift to give. God determines who hears it. And by the way, the fact that each and every one of you are here this morning, do you understand that the magnitude of what has happened. God from all eternity chose you, called you into this room this morning so that you may hear his words of grace. And if you understand that, how is it possible that we can ever step into a church with anything but deep gratitude and humility in our hearts? How is it possible that we can come to church with anything other than a deep sense of joy in our heart? God, the creator of the universe, knew me from all eternity, and he chose me to hear his promises. That's just mind-boggling. That is amazing. But that's what God does, and that's what God has done for you. He determines who hears his word, and he opens their heart to believe. Do not suppose that you have become a Christian because you are somehow more intelligent than your not believing neighbors. That is not the case. Do not think that you are somehow more morally righteous to respond to scriptures, whereas your neighbors, unbelieving neighbors, are hopeless heathens. That's not the case. The Lord in grace and mercy called you and with the same grace and mercy opened your mind to understand this word and opened your heart to believe the word that is proclaimed to you. And if so, how can you but rejoice? How can you but be humbled by God's grace to you? 
And knowing that salvation is God's gift to give, that he, it is he who determines who hears it, and it is he who opens the heart and the mind, we, you and I, we should pray for the Spirit's help every time we hear God's word so that we may benefit from the hearing of it. And as you share the gospel with your unbelieving neighbors and family members and friends, pray. Pray that the Spirit of Jesus Christ would open up their minds and their hearts to understand and believe what they hear. The Holy Spirit opens hearts. And thirdly and finally, the Spirit opens homes. Now, once Lydia understood and believed the gospel, uh, we see that two things immediately happened. We read here, and after she was baptized, and her household as well. Now, these past few weeks, we have had occasions to consider the Old Testament sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. And for the Old Testament saints, circumcision was a symbol that, re- that reminded them that they need cleansing of their hearts, and that cleansing comes by faith in God's promises. And in the New Testament, baptism serves the same function. Baptism symbolizes and also promises the cleansing of our souls and of our hearts that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And that is why our Savior Jesus, he commanded his disciples in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, why would Jesus command baptism? Well, it's simply, uh, Jesus knows. Jesus knows that we are often discouraged in our struggle against sin. And Jesus knows how guilt and shame can so easily overwhelm us. And that is why Jesus gave us this means of grace that in baptism we look to the Lord Jesus Christ when we are struggling, when we are burdened with guilt and shame, we look to the Lord Jesus Christ and remember the promise that we receive through baptism and we rest. We rest in his finished work. That's why Jesus commanded his disciples to be baptized precisely because he is a loving and gracious Savior. He knows that you struggle, and He loves you. And He gave you the sign of baptism that you might remember, that you might turn to Him in faith and say, Lord Jesus, I see so clearly today in my struggles, I have nothing to offer you. I am weak. I am burdened. But I receive your promise. You have promised to cleanse me. Thank you. And in this baptism, you remind me that you went to the cross to die for me. Though I did not love you, you loved me. Though I did not know you, you knew me. You see, that's what baptism 
does for us. That's why Lydia was baptized. And we read here that her household as well, her household was baptized also. And interestingly, we will see this in next week's passage in chapter 16, verse 33. Uh, The Philippian jailer, we read in verse 33, was baptized at once, he and all his family. So very often when we read in the New Testament about baptism, it's a household baptism. So think about it this way. Noah, in Genesis chapter 6, we find that Noah alone of all mankind found God's grace, and yet his whole family was brought into the ark. Abraham was alone justified by his faith, yet all his children received the sign of the covenant, both Ishmael, who later proves himself to be not a covenant child of God, and Isaac. So we see that covenant signs are administered to the entire household. And that is why in the New Testament, baptism also shows household principles. When we come to Christ, we bring to Jesus everything we hold dear and love the most, and we lay them at his feet. And that, of course, includes our household. When we come to Jesus, we bring to Jesus, we come to Jesus with everything that we love and hold precious, and we lay them at the feet of the Lord Jesus so that he may bless and sanctify and make his own. That is why in the New Testament, baptism is given to the household. And through it, we hold the covenant promises precious in our heart, and we hold it for our loved ones until they can uh, take hold of the promise by faith. And Lydia also urged them, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So Lydia offered both her household and home to the Lord. And this was very likely the beginnings of the church at Philippi. And so it is every Christian's joyful service to give to the Lord everything that we are and everything that we have. Now, Lydia was a seller of purple goods, and in those days, purple dye was very expensive. And so she is... uh, Her clientele were wealthy, rich people, and she herself was a wealthy person. And she opened up her home to the apostles and for the ministry of the word. Now, it is true, some of us, maybe most of us, we do not have large homes and we do not have big wallets that we can open to the Lord, and that's okay. Jesus knows exactly what you have and what you don't have. Jesus knows exactly what you can do and what you can't do. Because in fact, everything that you have and don't have is part of his gracious providence to you. 
and everything that you can do and can't do, as we were reminded this morning, that too is part of God's gracious design for your life. So he does not condemn you if you have nothing to share. In fact, he loves you. He loves you. And what this passage is really calling forth from us is not that you need to have a large home to open up or a big wallet to open up, but rather that you can have a large heart, a heart that is touched by God's grace, a heart that is made softened and enlarged by his love for you and your love for him. And with what God has given you, and with what you can do, love the Lord, serve the Lord. For Jesus, that's what he deserves from you. Amen. Now let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the word that we have heard, and we once again pray that you would cause your spirit to work in our hearts in such a way that we will both remember what we have learned and what we have learned would bear fruit in our hearts. Help us, O Lord, to be humble and joyful before you for being your children and help us to offer up ourselves to you with joy and gladness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.